Our text for today is from Paul's letter to the Galatians chapter 3, starting with verse 15 and following, which we heard just a few moments ago. If we are saved by God's grace and by God's grace alone, why then the law? If we're saved by God's grace and God's grace alone, why would God then give us his law? By law, I mean not only the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, which we've been talking about in Galatians, like circumcision and all the different uh, various food restrictions and the dietary codes and the washings and the religious festivals and all of that. Here in chapter 3, Paul's expanding what he means by the law, not only the ceremonial law, but the moral law as well, the Ten Commandments, etc. If we are saved by God's grace and God's grace alone, if we're not saved by keeping and obeying God's commands, why does he give us his commands and tell us to keep them and to obey them? Well, that is the very practical for us, very practical question that Paul is answering here in this latter section of Galatians chapter 3. Now, I have to say that this latter section of Galatians chapter 3 is the most confusing section of the entire letter. Perhaps you were listening earlier and wondering what in the world is Paul talking about? And there's different theologians and commentators that look at different verses, and there's different ideas about what Paul might mean. So let me begin by trying to kind of summarize for you what Paul is saying here in these verses. He begins, again, by speaking about Abraham, and he speaks of Abraham and all of the promises that God had made to him, as I try to use my Did I do that or did you do that in the back? I did that. Great. <laughs> so it's working a little bit. All of the promises that God made to Abraham, he promised him that he would be a great nation. He promised him descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. He promised him land, a piece of real estate that those people could dwell. And he promised that one from him would be a blessing to all the peoples, to all nations, both Jew and Gentile. This was the promise and the covenant that God had made with Abraham. Which was why Paul says this in verse 16. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And the point that Paul is making here is that the promises and the covenant of God and the grace of God was shown and given to Abraham first. Long before the commandments came in that form of way, long before God gave his law on Mount Sinai, hundreds and hundreds of years, God had made this promise to Abraham, and that promise was given to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, and then to the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. And if you remember the story of Joseph and his coat of many colors and his brother's jealousy of him, they sold him into slavery, and the family ends up in Egypt. They become a great nation. They're there for over 430 years. 
years enslaved, and then God sends Moses into Egypt, sets his people free, the parting of the Red Sea, into the Sinai wilderness, there at Mount Sinai, and then God finally gives his law and his commands to his people. This is what Paul is referring to here in verse 17 of Galatians chapter 3. Where he says that the law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. In other words, Paul here is saying just because God hundreds and hundreds of years later gave the law and gave his commands, it doesn't make the promises of God null and void. It says a ratified, uh, a covenant that was ratified by God. The promises of God. God cannot break his promise. Just because he gave the commands and he gave the law all those years later doesn't mean the promise and the covenant and the grace is null and void. This is always the way. This is always the pattern. Notice the order here. God makes a promise. God makes a covenant. God gives grace. God saves. And then he says, here is my law. We see this in the story of the giving of the law and of Moses and the Exodus. Notice the order there. That God does not give Moses the Ten Commandments and then send Moses into Egypt and say, here is the commandments of God. And I know that you've been slaves for 430 years and God has heard your cry of pain and God has sent me to you in Egypt with these commandments, with this holy law. And if, and only if, you keep the commands of God, then God will save you and make you his people. That's not how the story happened. No, God sent Moses into Egypt and he set his people free. The parting of the Red Sea, they crossed over from one side to the other side. The waters came and destroyed the army of the Pharaoh. And when God's people were on the other side of the Red Sea, it was a done deal. They were set free. They were the people of God. And then, and only then, does God give to them his law, his commands. That's always the way, it's always the order. But again, that again begs the question, if we are saved by God's grace and grace alone, Paul himself asks, why then the law? What purpose does the law play in our life. Why, if we're not saved by keeping the commands and obeying the commands, does he give these commands and say, obey them and keep them? Again, this is the most difficult section here in the letter to the Galatians. But I think the best verse to help us understand that is chapter 3, verse 24, where Paul says this. The law was our guardian. That's the key word. Until Christ came in order that we might be justified, that is, made right before God, declared just before God by faith. 
The law was our guardian. And there's something about this, the law and the commandments being our guardian, which then worked to actually bring us to this point where we can be justified by faith. So we have to understand what in the world this word guardian means. We'll look at that. In the Greek language, the word guardian is the word paidagogos. 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 We can get words like pedagogue from that. Paidagogos, a guardian. At this period of history in the Roman Empire, a paidagogos was a person. A paidagogos typically was a slave that oversaw the education of the children, specifically the sons at this period of history in the family. Uh, usually between the ages of six to maybe 16 years old, the paedagogos, the guardian, was not the teacher. The paedagogos would ensure that the child, the son, made it to his school and made it home from the school. The paedagogos would oversee that instruction, would tutor them, would oversee the education of that child. And a paedagogos, this guardian, there is both a very, very, very positive understanding and connotation to this, but there's also a very, very negative connotation and understanding of this. A paedagogos, this guardian, in a very positive way, overseeing the education of a child, the child is educated. The child with that education can live a better life or more fulfilled life a life where that child can flourish and thrive. So that's the good understanding. But oftentimes, a pedagogos, this guardian overseeing the instruction of this child, that meant discipline. That might mean beatings. That might mean in some ways crushing that child. So here Paul is using this example from the first century that has a very positive understanding. We think about the law of God. If we live by God's law and his commands, it's the best life possible that we can live. It actually leads to the most thriving and flourishing we can in life. But at the same time, the law of God can be crushing to us. We can never live up to God's holy standards. So the law is a guardian is a very positive thing, but it's also a very negative thing. And now that we are in Christ, the law no longer is this guardian. It takes on a whole other dimension and a whole other motivation for following and keeping. So I think that the best way we can summarize all of this that Paul is saying here is if we look at what is very, very central in Lutheran, good Lutheran theology... And it's what's called the three uses of the law. And this is where we'll spend the rest of our time here in the message this morning. The three uses of the law. The first use of the law is that it's a curb. The second use of the law is that it's a mirror. And the third use of the law is that it is a guide. A curb and a mirror and a guide. Let's talk a little bit more about that. First of all, the first use of the law is that the law of God serves as a curb. And curbs are good things. 
They keep us from harming ourselves. They keep us from harming other people. They keep us on the straight and narrow. They get us where we need to go. Imagine a world where there's no curves or there's no fences around us. And the law of God, again, if we are not lying, if we're not, you know, tearing down our neighbor and and gossiping, if we're not stealing, if we're not murdering, if we're not hurting people, if we're not committing adultery, if we're not coveting, if we're making God the central part of our life, that actually is the best life we can possibly lead this side of heaven. It leads to greater human flourishing and living, right? I think Pastor Nate shared this a while back. There was a study that had taken place about Playgrounds. We can think about a curb. We can, we can think about a fence. And the study found out that playgrounds, with the swings and the slides and big open fields, in a playground without a fence, the children were a little bit more apprehensive. The children tend to hover and stay around the teacher or the mom and the dad more often. They didn't go out and explore all around the playground because there wasn't a clear fence and a clear boundary but you can take that same playground you put a clear fence all the way around it the study found that the children run and play and leap and run around and have the most wonderful time they go right up to that fence but they know exactly where to go and actually leads to a greater happiness a greater joy more play more thriving more flourishing And in this way, the law of God, as a curb, as a fence, there is absolute freedom and there's greater human freedom to be truly what it means to be a human being the way that God designed us and made us, yes, within the fence of his law and his commands. We live in an age where more and more we are forsaking God's revealed law and his commands in right and wrong, and we say we can become our own gods, we develop our own sense of right and wrong, And I think we can begin to see a crumbling of civilization and certainly of individual human lives. It is not what we were made for. It doesn't lead to flourishing and living. So here we see, first of all, the law of God as a curb. But the second use of the law, and that's something we say in Lutheran theology, the second use of the law The second use of the law is that the law is a mirror. Miss Cassie talked about that in her kids' message. That the law of God can act like a mirror because it shows us our sinfulness. It shows us the distance between us and a holy God. And it doesn't do that simply to crush us or to kill us, although it does crush us and it can kill us, but it does so to make us alive again in Christ so that we see our sin and we see our need for the waiting and loving arms of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is talking about in the book of Romans, uh, chapter 3, uh, verse 20, where he says this. He says, By works of the law... No human being, not a one, will be justified, will be declared holy and just and made right in his sight, since through the law comes what? Knowledge of sin. And the law, the more you know God's law and you know his word, the law of God can be not just a simple mirror 
like you look at, you know, when you're brushing your hair in the morning. But the law of God can be like those mirrors. Oftentimes it seems like ladies, you use them more than men. And it's the mirrors that magnify, you know, like 20 or 30 or like a thousand times. And I, I'm telling you, on the boxes of those mirrors, there should be a warning label that says self-esteem ruiner. Because I look into those mirrors and I go, oh, it looks like the surface of the moon, my face. And you're in there tweezing and plucking and apply, whatever you do. And I'm horrified by what I see in those, that mirror because it really shows me. And that is the law, the second use of the law. As we said last week, you know, there is this chasm because of sin between us and God. It's a chasm, and we can do all the, all the good works, and we can be as religious as we can possibly be, and we can never, ever manage to make it across that chasm. This image makes it look like we can get 50% of the way. Remember, this is an infinite chasm between us and a holy God. What's 50% of infinity? It's nothing, right? We are so far away, we could never do it on ourselves, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ which bridges the gap as you're covered not in your own righteousness but in the righteousness of Christ himself. So the first use of the law is that curb, that fence leads to human flourishing, the best way to live our lives, generally speaking. But secondly, the use of the law is a mirror which shows us our sin and our need for Jesus, and then finally, law of God is a guide. It is a guide to the very heart of God. Remember the order. Grace comes first. The gospel comes first. The promise and the covenant is first. Salvation is first. You are a child of God. You have been baptized into Christ, as we just sang. It is a done deal. In fact, you could say it is finished. You are in the club. You are in the family. Full stop, period. That's a fact. You're in a relationship by grace. And just like any relationship, you want to love what that person loves. You want to grow in that relationship. And God says, here's my law, here's my commandments. This is what I love. I want you to love what I love. Isn't that how it should be in a relationship? My favorite way of illustrating this, I have to say this. My wife, Leah, loves pottery handmade pottery. She loves it because of the beauty of the pottery, but because of the functionality as well. There's something about the functionality and the beauty coming together just delights you. And we have, if you come to our house, you can see pottery on various shelves around the home. Now, 17 years ago, when we were getting married, it was my job to select the location of our honeymoon, our wedding trip. And we were living in Florida at the time, so beat the heat, let's go up north a little bit, go up to North Carolina and to the Appalachian Mountains to the town of Asheville, North Carolina. Quaint, funky little town. Little did I know that Asheville, North Carolina is the worldwide capital of what? Pottery making. 
There's literally a type of mineral-rich clay found only in that region. And just up the road from Asheville, there's one location. There are a hundred pottery studios in this one little area. So guess what we did on our honeymoon? <laughs> we were about five or six days that we were there. Leah wanted to find the perfect piece of pottery by which she would forever remember this wonderful wedding and honeymoon and so it was day after day after day and it was studio after studio and shop after shop and it was aisle after aisle and row after row and shelf after shelf looking for that perfect piece of honeymoon pottery and she did not find it until the very last day at the airport gift shop as they were literally calling our flight. And she found it, and we still have it there on the shelf. Now look, did I want to go shopping for pottery? No, not my thing. But on my honeymoon, this is my bride. I'm married. Oh my goodness, and the love, and the ooey gooey, and the oh my gosh. I was having fun because she was having fun. I didn't want to do that. I brought my will into alignment with hers because it's what she loved, and I was loving what she was loving. That's relationship. That's the law of God as a guide. Now, some of you might say, yeah, 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 but with God, it's all one way. A real relationship, it's a two-way thing. And with God, he gives the commands, he gives the orders, he says obey. We bring our will in alignment with him, and that's it. But you're forgetting what? The gospel. Where God literally comes down and becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross that God literally handed himself over to us. And what did we do? We arrested him, and we punched him, and we spit on him, and we nailed him to a cross. He literally gave everything for you because he wants you, because he is crazy in love with you, and he likes you, and he wants you with him. So when we fail, because we will fail, every single day we fail, Jesus is there saying, with his arms wide open, saying, I love you and I forgive you in your mind. The law of God is that curb, it's that fence. It's the best way we can live our life this side of heaven. It's a mirror, and it can be a powerful mirror to show us our sin, but to show us our need for Jesus, and it's a guide. It's a guide to the very heart of of God himself. And so to Christ alone be all the glory. Amen.